Chapter Five of An Antarctic Mystery, or The Sphinx of the Ice Fields. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. An Antarctic Mystery by Jules Verne. Chapter Five. Edgar Poe's Romance. In this chapter, I have to give a brief summary of Edgar Poe's romance which was published at Richmond under the title of The Adventures of Arthur Gordon Pym. We shall see whether there was any room for doubt that the adventures of this hero of romance were imaginary. But indeed, among the multitude of Poe's readers, was there ever one, with the sole exception of Len Guy, who believed them to be real? The story is told by the principal personage. Arthur Pym states in the preface that on his return from his voyage to the Antarctic seas, he met, among the Virginian gentlemen, who took an interest in geographical discoveries, Edgar Poe, who was then editor of the Southern Literary Messenger at Richmond, and that he authored the latter to publish the first part of his adventures in that journal under the cloak of fiction. That portion, having been favorably received, a volume containing the complete narrative was issued with the signature of Edgar Poe. Arthur Gordon Pym was born at Nantucket, where he attended the Bedford School until he was sixteen years old. Having left that school for Mr. Ronald's, he formed a friendship with one Augustus Barnard, the son of a ship's captain. This youth, who was eighteen, had already accompanied his father on a whaling expedition in the southern seas and his yarns concerning that maritime adventure fired the imagination of Arthur Pym. Thus it was the association of these youths gave rise to Pym's irresistible vocation to adventurous voyaging, and to the instinct that especially attracted him towards the high zones of the Antarctic regions. The first exploit of Augustus Bernard and Arthur Pym was an excursion on board a little sloop, the Ariel a two-decked boat, which belonged to the Pims. One evening the two youths, both being very tipsy, embarked secretly in cold October weather, and boldly set sail in a strong breeze from the southwest. The Ariel, aided by the ebb-tide, had already lost sight of land when a violent storm arose. The imprudent young fellows were still intoxicated. No one was at the helm, not a reef was in the sail. The masts were carried away by the furious gusts, and the wreck was driven before the wind. Then came a great ship which passed over the Ariel, as the Ariel would have passed a floating feather. Arthur Pym gives the fullest details of the rescue of his companion and himself after this collision, under conditions of extreme difficulty. At length, thanks to the second officer of the Penguin, from New London, which arrived on the scene of the catastrophe, the comrades were picked with life all but extinct, and taken back to Nantucket. This adventure, to which I cannot deny an appearance of veracity, was an ingenious preparation for the chapters that were to follow, and indeed up to the day on which Pym penetrates into the polar circle, the narrative might conceivably be regarded as authentic. But beyond the polar circle, above the austral icebergs, it is quite another thing, and if the author's work be not one of pure imagination, I am, well, of any other nationality than my own, 
Let us get on. Their first adventure had not cooled the two youths, and eight months after the affair of the Ariel, June 1827, the brig Grampus was fitted out by the house of Lloyd and Vradenburg for whaling in the southern seas. This brig was an old, ill-repaired craft, and Mr. Barnard, the father of Augustus, was its skipper. His son, who was to accompany him on the voyage, strongly urged Arthur to go with him, and the latter would have asked nothing better, but he knew that his family, and especially his mother, would never consent to let him go. This obstacle, however, could not stop a youth not much given to submit to the wishes of his parents. His head was full of the entreaties and persuasions of his companion, and he determined to embark secretly on the Grampus, for Mr. Bernard would not have authorized him to defy the prohibition of his family. He announced that he had been invited to pass a few days with a friend at New Bedford, took leave of his parents, and left his home. Forty-eight hours before the brig was to sail, he slipped on board unperceived, and got into a hiding-place which had been prepared for him, unknown alike to Mr. Bernard and the crew. The cabin occupied by Augustus communicated by a trap-door with the hold of the Grampus, which was crowded with barrels, bales, and the innumerable components of a cargo. Through the trap-door Arthur Pym reached his hiding-place, which was a huge wooden chest with a sliding side to it. This chest contained a mattress, blankets, a jar of water, ship's biscuit, smoked sausage, a roast quarter of mutton, a few bottles of cordials and liquors, and also writing materials. Arthur Pym, supplied with a lantern, candles, and tinder, remained three days and nights in his retreat. Augustus Barnard had not been able to visit him until just before the Grampus set sail. An hour later, Arthur Pym began to feel the rolling and pitching of the brig. He was very uncomfortable in the chest, so he got out of it, and in the dark, while holding on by a rope which was stretched across the hold to the trap of his friend's cabin, he was violently seasick in the midst of the chaos. Then he crept back into his chest, ate, and fell asleep. Several days elapsed without the reappearance of Augustus Barnard. Either he had not been able to get down into the hold again, or he had not ventured to do so, fearing to betray the presence of Arthur Pym, and thinking the moment for confessing everything to his father had not yet come. Arthur Pym, meanwhile, was beginning to suffer from the hot and vitiated atmosphere of the hold. Terrible nightmares troubled his sleep. He was conscious of raving, and in vain sought some place amid the mass of cargo where he might breathe a little more easily. In one of these fits of delirium he imagined that he was gripped in the claws of an African lion, and in a paroxysm of terror he was about to betray himself by screaming, when he lost consciousness. The fact is that he was not dreaming at all. It was not a lion that Arthur Pym felt crouching upon his chest. It was his own dog, Tiger, a young Newfoundland. The animal had been smuggled on board by Augustus Barnard, unperceived by anybody. This, at least, is an unlikely occurrence. At the moment of Arthur's coming out of his swoon, the faithful tiger was licking his face and hands with lavish affection. Now the prisoner had a companion. 
Unfortunately, the said companion had drunk the contents of the water-jar while Arthur was unconscious. And when Arthur Pym felt thirsty, he discovered that there was not a drop to drink. His lantern had gone out during his prolonged faint. He could not find the candles and the tinder-box, and then he resolved to rejoin Augustus Barnard at all hazards. He came out of the chest, and although faint from inantiation and trembling with weakness, he felt his way in the direction of the trap-door by means of the rope. But while he was approaching, one of the bales of cargo, shifted by the rolling of the ship, fell down and blocked up the passage. With immense but quite useless exertion, he contrived to get over this obstacle. But when he reached the trap-door, under Augustus Barnard's cabin, he failed to raise it, and on slipping the blade of his knife through one of the joints he found that a heavy mass of iron was placed upon the trap, as though it were intended to condemn him beyond hope. He had to renounce his attempt, and drag himself back towards the chest, on which he fell, exhausted, while Tiger covered him with caresses. The master and the dog were desperately thirsty, and when Arthur stretched out his hand, he found Tiger lying on his back with his paws up and his hair on end. He then felt Tiger all over, and his hand encountered a string passed along the dog's body. A strip of paper was fastened to the string under his left shoulder. Arthur Pym had reached the last stage of weakness. Intelligence was almost extinct. However, after several fruitless attempts to procure light, he succeeded in rubbing the paper with a little phosphorus. The details given in Edgar Poe's narrative are curiously minute at this point. And then, by the glimmer that lasted less than a second, he discerned just seven words at the end of a sentence. Terrifying words these were. Blood. Remain hidden. Life depends upon it. What did these words mean? Let us consider the situation of Arthur Pym at the bottom of the ship's hold, between the boards of a chest, without light, without water, with only ardent liquor to quench his thirst. And this warning to remain hidden, preceded by the word blood? That supreme word, king of words, so full of mystery, of suffering, of terror. Had there been strife on board the Grampus? Had the brig been attacked by pirates? Had the crew mutinied? How long had this state of things lasted? It might be thought that the marvellous poet had exhausted the resources of his imagination in the terror of such a situation. But it was not so. There is more to come. Arthur Pym lay stretched upon his mattress, incapable of thought, in a sort of lethargy. Suddenly he became aware of a singular sound, a kind of continuous whistling breathing. It was Tiger panting, Tiger with the eyes that glared in the midst of the darkness, Tiger with gnashing teeth, Tiger gone mad. Another moment and the dog had sprung upon Arthur Pym, who, wound up to the highest pitch of horror, recovered sufficient strength to ward off his fangs, and wrapping around him a blanket which Tiger had torn with his white teeth, he slipped out of the chest, and shut the sliding side upon the snapping and struggling brute. Arthur Pym contrived to slip through the stowage of the hold, but his head swam, and falling against a bale, he let his knife drop from his hand. Just as he felt himself breathing his last sigh, he heard his name pronounced, and a bottle of water was held to his lips. 
he swallowed the whole of its contents and experienced the most exquisite of pleasures a few minutes later augustus barnard seated with his comrade in a corner of the hold told him all that had occurred on board the brig up to this point i repeat the story is admissible but we have not yet come to the events which surpass all probability by their marvellousness the crew of the grampus numbered thirty-six men including the bernards father and son after the brig had put to sea on the twentieth of june augustus barnard had made several attempts to rejoin arthur pym in his hiding-place but in vain on the third day a mutiny broke out on board headed by the ship's cook a negro like our endicott but he let me say at once would never have thought of heading a mutiny numerous incidents are related in the romance the massacre of most of the sailors who remained faithful to captain barnard then the turning adrift of the captain and four of those men in a small whaler's boat when the ship was abreast of the bermudas these unfortunate persons were never heard of again augustus barnard would not have been spared but for the intervention of the sailing-master of the grampus this sailing-master was a half-breed named jerk peters and was the person whom captain len guy had gone to look for in illinois the grampus then took a southeast course under the command of the mate who intended to pursue the occupation of piracy in the southern seas these events having taken place augustus barnard would have again joined arthur pym but he had been shut up in the forecastle in irons and told by the ship's cook that he would not be allowed to come out until the brig should no longer be a brig nevertheless a few days afterwards augustus contrived to get rid of his fetters to cut through the thin partition between him and the hold and followed by tiger he tried to reach his friend's hiding-place he could not succeed but the dog had scented arthur pym and this suggested to augustus the idea of fastening a note to tiger's neck bearing the words i scrawl this with blood remain hidden your life depends upon it this note as we have already learned arthur pym had received just as he had arrived at the last extremity of distress his friend reached him augustus added that discord reigned among the mutineers some wanted to take the grampus towards the cape Verde islands others and dirk peter was one of this number were bent on sailing to the pacific isles tiger was not mad he was only suffering from terrible thirst and soon recovered when it was relieved the cargo of the grampus was so badly stowed away that arthur pym was in constant danger from the shifting of the bales and augustus at all risks helped him to remove to a corner of the twain decks the half-breed continued to be very friendly with the son of captain barnard so that the latter began to consider whether the sailing-master might not be counted on in an attempt to regain possession of the ship they were just thirty days out from nantucket when on the fourth of july an angry dispute arose among the mutineers about a little brig signalled in the offing which some of them wanted to take and others would have allowed to escape in this quarrel a sailor belonging to the cook's party to which dirk peter had attached himself was mortally injured there was now only thirteen men on board counting arthur pym 
Under these circumstances a terrible storm arose, and the Grampus was mercilessly knocked about. This storm raged until the ninth of July, and on that day Dirk Peters having manifested an intention of getting rid of the mate, Augustus Bernard readily assured him of his assistance, without, however, revealing the fact of Arthur Pym's presence on board. Next day one of the cook's adherents, a man named Rogers, died in convulsions, and, beyond all doubt, of poison. Only four of the cook's party then remained. Of these Dirk Peters was one. The mate had five, and would probably end by carrying the day over the cook's party. There was not an hour to lose. The half-breed, having informed Augustus Barnard that the moment for action had arrived, the latter told him the truth about Arthur Pym. While the two were in consultation upon the means to be employed for regaining possession of the ship, a tempest was raging, and presently a gust of irresistible force struck the Grampus and flung her upon her side, so that, on righting herself, she shipped a tremendous sea, and there was considerable confusion on board. This offered a favourable opportunity for beginning the struggle, although the mutineers had made peace amongst themselves. The latter numbered nine men, while the half-breed's party consisted only of himself, Augustus Bernard, and Arthur Pym. The ship's master possessed only two pistols and a hanger. It was therefore necessary to act with prudence. Then did Arthur Pym, whose presence on board the mutineers did not suspect, conceive the idea of a trick which had some chance of succeeding. The body of the poisoned sailor was still lying on the deck. He thought it likely, if he were to put on the dead man's clothes, and appear suddenly in the midst of those superstitious sailors, that their terror would place them at the mercy of Dirk Peters. It was still dark when the half-breed went softly towards the ship's stern, and, exerting his prodigious strength to the utmost, threw himself upon the man at the wheel, and flung him over the poop. Augustus Barnard and Arthur Pym joined him instantly, each armed with a belaying pin. Leaving Dirk Peters in the place of the steersman, Arthur Pym, so disguised as to present himself the appearance of the dead man, and his comrade posted themselves close to the head of the forecastle gangway. The mate, the ship's cook, and the, all the others were there, some sleeping, the others drinking or talking. Guns and pistols were within reach of their hands. The tempest raged furiously. It was almost impossible to stand on the deck. At that moment the mate gave the order for Augustus Bernard and Dirk Peters to be brought to the forecastle. This order was transmitted to the man at the helm, no other than Dirk Peters, who went down, accompanied by Augustus Barnard, and almost simultaneously Arthur Pym made his appearance. The effect of the apparition was prodigious. The mate, terrified, on beholding the resurrected sailor, sprang up, beat the air with his hands, and fell down dead. Then Dirk Peters rushed upon the others, seconded by Augustus Bernard, Arthur Pym, and the dog Tiger. In a few moments all were strangled or knocked on the head, save Richard Parker, the sailor, whose life was spared. And now, while the tempest was still in full force, only four men were left to work the brig, which was labouring terribly with seven feet of water in her hold. 
they had to cut down the main mast, and when morning came, the mizzen. That day was truly awful. The night was more awful still. If Dirk Peters and his companions had not lashed themselves securely to the remains of the rigging, they must have been carried away by a tremendous sea, which drove in the hatches of the Grampus. Then follows in the romance a minute record of the series of incidents ensuing upon this situation, from the 14th of July to the 7th of August, the fishing for victuals in the submerged hold, the coming of a mysterious brig laden with corpses, which poisoned the atmosphere and passed on like a huge coffin, the sport of a wind of death, the torments of hunger and thirst, the impossibility of reaching the provision store, the drawing of lots by straws, the shortest gave Richard Parker to be sacrificed for the life of the other three, the death of that unhappy man who was killed by Dirk Peters and devoured, lastly the finding in the hold of a jar of olives and a small turtle. Owing to the displacement of her cargo, the grampus rolled and pitched more and more. The frightful heat caused the torture of thirst to reach the extreme limit of human endurance. And on the 1st of August, Augustus Barnard died. On the 3rd, the brig foundered in the night, and Arthur Pym and the half-breed, crouching upon the upturned keel, were reduced to feed upon the barnacles with which the bottom was covered, in the midst of a crowd of waiting, watching sharks. Finally, after the shipwrecked mariners of the Grampus had drifted no less than twenty-five degrees towards the south, they were picked up by the schooner Jane of Liverpool, Captain William Guy. Evidently, reason is not outraged by an admission of the reality of these facts, although the situations are strained to the utmost limits of possibility. But that does not surprise us, for the writer is the American magician-poet. Edgar Poe. But from this moment onwards we shall see that no semblance of reality exists in the succession of incidents. Arthur Pym and Dirk Peters were well treated on board the English schooner Jane. In a fortnight, having recovered from the effects of their sufferings, they remembered them no more. With alternations of fine and bad weather, the Jane sighted Prince Edward's Island on the 13th of October, then the Crozet Islands, and afterwards the Kerguelens, which I had left eleven days ago. Three weeks were employed in chasing sea-calves. These furnished the Jane with a goodly cargo. It was during this time that the captain of the Jane buried the bottle in which his namesake of the Halbrane claims to have found a letter containing William Guy's announcement of his intention to visit the Austral Seas. On the 12th of November, the schooner left the Kerguelens, and after a brief stay at Tristan d'Archuna, she sailed to reconnoitre the Auroras in 35 degrees 15 minutes of south latitude and 37 degrees 38 minutes of west longitude. But these islands were not to be found, and she did not find them. On the 12th of December, the Jane headed towards the Antarctic Pole. On the 26th, the first icebergs came in sight beyond the seventy-third degree. From the first to the fourteenth of January, eighteen twenty-eight, the movements were difficult. The polar circle was passed in the midst of ice floes. The iceberg's point was doubled, and the ship sailed on the surface of an open sea. 
the famous open sea, where the temperature is 47 degrees Fahrenheit and the water is 34 degrees. Edgar Poe, everyone will allow, gives free rein to his fancy at this point. No navigator had ever reached latitudes so high, not even James Weddell of the British Navy, who did not get beyond the 74th parallel in 1822. But the achievement of the Jane, although difficult of belief, is trifling in comparison with the succeeding incidents which Arthur Pym, or rather Edgar Poe, relates with simple earnestness. In fact, he entertained no doubt of reaching the pole itself. In the first place, not a single iceberg is to be seen on this fantastic sea. Innumerable flocks of birds skim its surface. Among them is a pelican which is shot. On a floating piece of ice is a bear of the arctic species and of gigantic size. At last, land is signalled. It is an island of a league in circumference, to which the name of Bennet Islet was given, in honour of the captain's partner in the ownership of the Jane. Naturally, in proportion as the schooner sailed southward, the variation of the compass became less, while the temperature became milder, with the sky always clear and a uniform northerly breeze. Needless to add that in that latitude and in the month of January there was no darkness. The Jane pursued her adventurous course until, on the 18th of January, land was sighted in latitude 83 degrees 20 minutes and longitude 43 degrees 5 minutes. This proved to be an island belonging to a numerous group scattered about in a westerly direction. The schooner approached and anchored off the shore. Arms were placed in the boats, and Arthur Pym got into one of the latter with Dirk Peters. The men rowed shorewards, but were stopped by four canoes carrying armed men. New men, the narrative calls them. These men showed no hostile intentions, but cried out continuously, Anamu and Lama Lama. When the canoes were alongside the schooner, the chief, to it, was permitted to go on board with twenty of his companions. There was profound astonishment on their part then, for they took the ship for a living creature, and lavished caresses on the rigging, the masts, and the bulwarks. Steering between the reefs by these natives, she crossed a bay with a bottom of black sand, and cast anchor within a mile of the beach. Then William Guy, leaving the hostages on board, stepped ashore amid the rocks. If Arthur Pym is to be believed, this was Salal Island. Its trees resembled none of the species in any other zone of our planet. The composition of the rocks revealed a stratification unknown to modern mineralogists. Over the bed of the streams ran a liquid substance without any appearance of limpidity, streaked with distinct veins, which did not reunite by immediate cohesion when they were parted by the blade of a knife. Clock-clock, which we are obliged to describe as the chief town of the island, consisted of wretched huts, entirely formed of black skins. It possessed domestic animals resembling the common pig, a sort of sheep with a black fleece, twenty kinds of fowls, tame albatross, ducks, and large turtles in great numbers. Arriving at Clock-Clock, Captain William Guy and his companions found a population which Arthur Pym estimated at ten thousand souls, men, women, and children, 
if not to be feared, at least to be kept at a distance. So noisy and demonstrative they were. Finally, after a long halt at the hut of Tewit, the strangers returned to the shore, where the beche de mer, the favorite food of the Chinese, would provide enormous cargoes, for the succulent mollusk is more abundant there than in any other part of the austral regions. Captain William Guy immediately endeavored to come to an understanding with Tewit on this matter, requesting him to authorize the construction of sheds in which some of the men of the Jane might prepare the beche de mer, while the schooner should hold on her course towards the pole. Tewit accepted this proposal willingly, and made a bargain by which the natives were to give their labor in the gathering in of the precious mollusk. At the end of the month, the sheds being finished, three men were told off to remain at Salal. The natives had not given the strangers cause to entertain the slightest suspicion of them. Before leaving the place, Captain William Guy wished to return once more to the village of Klock-Klock, having from prudent motives left six men on board, the guns charged, the bulwark nettings in their place, and the anchor hanging at the forepeak. In a word, all in readiness to oppose an approach of the natives. To it, escorted by a hundred warriors, came out to meet the visitors. Captain William Guy and his men, although the place was propitious to an ambuscade, walked in close order, each pressing upon each other. On the right, a little in advance, were Arthur Pym and Dirk Peters, and a sailor named Allen. Having reached a spot where a fissure traversed the hillside, Arthur Pym turned into it in order to gather some hazelnuts which hung in clusters upon stunted bushes. Having done this, he was returning to the path when he perceived that Allen and the half-breed had accompanied him. They were all three approaching the mouth of the fissure when they were thrown down by a sudden and violent shock. At the same moment, the crumbling masses of the hill slid down upon them and they were instantly concluded that they were doomed to be buried alive. Alive? All three? No. Allen had been so deeply covered by the sliding soil that he was already smothered. But Arthur Pym and Dirk Peters contrived to drag themselves on their knees, and opening away with their bowie knives to a projecting mass of harder clay which had resisted the movement from above, and from thence they climbed to a natural platform at the extremity of a wooded ravine. Above them they could see the blue sky roof, and from their position were enabled to survey the surrounding country. An artificial landslip, cunningly contrived by the natives, had taken place. Captain William Guy and his twenty-eight companions had disappeared. They were crushed beneath more than a million tons of earth and stones. The plain was swarming with natives who had come, no doubt, from the neighboring islets, attracted by the prospect of pillaging the Jane. Seventy boats were being paddled towards the ship. The six men on board fired on them, but their aim was uncertain in the first volley. A second, in which mitrail and grooved bullets were used, produced a terrible effect. Nevertheless, the Jane, being boarded by the swarming islanders, her defenders were massacred, and she was set on fire. Finally a terrific explosion took place. The fire had reached the powder store, killing a thousand natives and mutilating as many more, while the others fled, uttering the cry of, Tickalee-lee! Tickalee-lee! 
During the following week, Arthur Pym and Dirk Peters, living on nuts and bitterns flesh, escaped discovery by the natives who did not suspect their presence. They found themselves at the bottom of a sort of dark abyss, including several plains, but without issue, hollowed out from the hillside and of great extent. The two men could not live in the midst of these successive abysses, and after several attempts they let themselves slide on one of the slopes of the hill. Instantly six savages rushed upon them, but thanks to their pistols and the extraordinary strength of the half-breed, four of the assailants were killed. The fifth was dragged away by the fugitives, who reached a boat which had been pulled up on the beach and was laden with three huge turtles. A score of natives pursued and vainly tried to stop them. The former were driven off, and the boat was launched successfully and steered for the south. Arthur Pym was then navigating beyond the eighty-fourth degree of south latitude. It was the beginning of March. That is to say, the Antarctic winter was approaching. Five or six islands, which it was prudent to avoid, were visible towards the west. Arthur Pym's opinion was that the temperature would become more mild by degrees as they approached the pole. They tied together two white shirts which they had been wearing, and hoisted them to do duty as a sail. A sight of these shirts, the native, who answered to the name of Nunu, was terrified. For eight days this strange voyage continued, favoured by a mild wind from the north, in permanent daylight, on a sea without a fragment of ice. Indeed, owing to the high and even temperature of the water, no ice had been seen since the parallel of Bennett Island. Then it was that Arthur Pym and Dirk Peters entered upon a region of novelty and wonder. Above the horizon line rose a broad bar of light grey vapour, striped with long luminous rays, such as are projected by the polar aurora. A very strong current came to aid the breeze. The boat sailed rapidly upon a liquid surface of milky aspect, exceedingly hot and apparently agitated from beneath. A fine white ash-dust began to fall, and this increased the terror of Nunu, whose lips trembled over his two rows of black ivory. On the ninth of March this rain of ashes fell in redoubled volume, and the temperature of the water rose so high that the hand could no longer bear it. The immense curtain of vapour, spread over the distant perimeter of the southern horizon, resembled a boundless cataract, falling noiselessly from the height of some huge rampart, lost in the height of the heavens. Twelve days later it was darkness that hung over these waters, darkness furrowed by luminous streaks darting from the milky depths of the Antarctic Ocean, while the incessant shower of ash-dust fell and melted in its waters. The boat approached the cataract with an impetuous velocity, whose cause is not explained in the narrative of Arthur Pym. In the midst of this frightful darkness a flock of gigantic birds of livid white plumage swept by, uttering their eternal tekelili, and then the savage, in the supreme throes of terror, gave up the ghost. Suddenly, in a mad whirl of speed, the boat rushed into the grasp of the cataract, where a vast gulf seemed ready to swallow it up. But before the mouth of this gulf 
there stood a veiled human figure of greater size than any inhabitant of this earth, and the color of the man's skin was the perfect whiteness of snow. Such is the strange romance conceived by the more than human genius of the greatest poet of the new world. End of chapter 5